entering the Freedom Hut. All hail King Trump, they say. Plus, John Kerry has a bit of a socialist fear meltdown. Will Iowa go for Bernie, speaking of socialists, and a almost half-naked halftime show? That and more coming up. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. We are at the point, and I wrote a whole book about it, my last book, where we are at the point where we are not living in a constitutional republic anymore. As you know, a republic is a a democracy in which the rights of the minority party are defended. Now what we have is we have a constitutional monarchy or a constitutional autocracy where Donald Trump is the supreme element of this state, like North Korea. And I think that if we don't reverse this in this upcoming election and fight to defend the American Constitution, that will be it for America as we've known it. Just like North Korea. <laughs> Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. We are just like North Korea. That's that's what we're being told here, because we're not about to watch a president of the United States get removed from office for effectively nothing, because Democrats, after all the Machinations, after all the efforts, after everything they've put together, the allies they have, the lackeys, the little quizlings, it's a fun word, the quizlings they have in the media doing the bidding of the left and the Democratic Party. Turns out it hasn't been enough, and they look like they're going to have to accept that the Senate will, in fact, acquit. Nancy Pelosi can say it's not an acquittal all day. They will acquit Donald Trump, which means the impeachment, which was entirely Democrat votes in the House goes nowhere and, in fact, ends in a resounding, sorry, he's still president. Still your president, Libs. Deal with it. And as much fun as it would be to walk around with an all-hail King Trump T-shirt on, it's probably best if we avoid that because some of the Libs really do seem to believe that we are now living in an autocracy. Meanwhile, Trump is out there on the campaign trail trying to convince people to vote for him. Because unlike crazy libs, if for some reason the election goes against Trump and, you know, the the Electoral College produces a result that leaves us with either a straight up socialist or a basically as good as a socialist Democrat in office for the presidency for four years. Conservatives, Trump voters will deal with it. We'll accept that. We'll say, okay, fine. This is now the reality that we have to live in. About half or so of our fellow American voters are dumb enough to go for this stuff, so we're going to have to just work through this now. That's what adults do. That's what an actual democracy, although, of course, we're a republic with a democratic system of electing our leaders, but that's the system that we have. And it's no longer possible for those in the media to clown themselves any more thoroughly than they already have. I mean, they've, they've already gone to say things like, North Korea, we are North Korea, that we are we are a uh, a dictatorship, that President Trump, because he is not being removed for what again? I mean, the fact that they put in the abuse of power charge, I just I, I don't want to let that slide. No intelligent person thinks that it's an abuse of power for the president to say we will go to court 
if you try to subpoena our people and the courts will decide. If the courts decided against Trump and he said, sorry, just still not going to do it, then we can have a conversation about autocracy. But the Democrats, knowing that they would probably lose in court or that it would take longer than they liked, withdrew those challenges, wouldn't even go through the process because the process would not give them the result they wanted. And that is because they have no respect for the actual rules and guidelines and guardrails of our system. They just pretend. This is like the strange newfound respect that Nancy Pelosi and and Chuck Schumer have for the Constitution and the Founding Fathers. I mean, Nancy Pelosi has about as much love and familiarity for the Constitution and the Founding Fathers as a bunch of little green men dropped here from Mars who don't even speak any earthly language. But, you know, Nancy Pelosi's got to come up with something to say. She's got to tell us something. So she waxes philosophical about how much she loves the Constitution. It's simply absurd. But, uh, Malcolm Nance over at MSNBC is, is clearly not the only one. He's just reciting now the Democrat talking point. They didn't get the result they wanted, although I should say we have not had the Senate acquittal vote. And he, here's a fun prediction for you. We've got to mark this one down, Producer Mark. I think Mitt Romney may actually, I think Mitt Romney may vote, may vote to uh, convict. I, I, I think Mitt Romney, I think Mitt Romney may just decide he doesn't even care anymore. Uh, you just got to go for it. I, I'm, there are very few political candidates that I'm embarrassed to have uh, supported. Um, uh, Mitt, Mitt is now in that category. I mean, I think he would have been better than Obama, but I'm not sure he would have been that much better than Obama. And that's not good enough if you're going to be a Republican standard bearer. He has been very disappointing in this whole process. But the good guys won over the weekend. I mean, that's, I hope, and I'm not talking about the Kansas City Chiefs, by the way, although maybe I am. Kansas City, Missouri, and not Kansas City, Kansas. The president had a little bit of a mishap there. Can I just note, as an aside, it's a little weird, okay? It's a little weird that there's a city that's, really two cities, but they're right next to each other. And one is kind of small and it's in Kansas, but it's called Kansas City. And there's another that's in Missouri, but it's Kansas City as well. And they're right next to each other. And come on, Bruce and Mark, you agree. This is unnecessarily confusing. Can we just get one Kansas City, please? Just, you know, make make it the greater Kansas City. And I, I feel like the people that Name these things should have thought this through a little bit more. So I think yeah, the president, I, he made a the president had a boo boo here. He made a mistake, but I just want to put that aside for a moment because it is unnecessarily confusing. Unlike some of the other mistakes that politicians make, this one I give a little bit of leeway on. Um, but the good guys won, meaning that because there's not going to be an extension of this, we're not going to allow for the same sham, scam, fraud tactics that the Democrats used in the Kavanaugh debacle. Because now we will have a vote, and this is a political process. It's not a criminal trial, so they can whine and cry about, oh, the lack of witnesses. They had 17 of them, but the lack of witnesses and all this other stuff, they can whine and cry. It doesn't work. They know that they're in trouble. We'll get more into this as well. I mean, as they're going to the Iowa caucuses, do you get the sense that Democrats are excited for the American people to learn more about these candidates, see which candidate's going to make it out of the pack? They're terrified. They're hoping for some kind of primary miracle where all of a sudden there'll be consolidation around one Democrat who has real enthusiasm and excitement behind him. That's not a socialist. The only candidate right now that does have real enthusiasm and socialism, well, and socialism behind him, real enthusiasm and excitement behind him 
is Bernie Sanders. And that's even a problem for the Democrats as they go into this. Um, but first, we just have to deal with this week is going to be a week when we are reminded that Trump is not tired of winning. He's not tired of winning yet. Not there. We're going to have a State of the Union address. We very well may have a president addressing the recent socialist victory in a Democrat primary in his State of the Union address. We'll have the acquittal of the president of the United States. Mark my words, my friends, if they have a majority in the House again after a Trump re-election, they will impeach him again. These people are nuts. They learn no lessons. There's nothing that they, they they don't take anything from this other than it was a nice try. We got to try again. You know, darn it. We didn't get him this time. We didn't get him with the Mueller probe. We didn't get him with all the different news cycles about this time he's gone too far. This time he's crossed the line. None of that worked. None of that did what they thought it would do. And so here we are. We find ourselves in the midst of the dealing with the reality of a Democrat party that no longer has any dignity to protect when it comes to these matters. So they have tremendous leeway, a lot of latitude to operate in. When you have no dignity or, no, or integrity to protect, your options are very broad. So another impeachment could very well happen. As I've been saying, and mark this one down too, the refusal by Democrats in the House, if they have the majority, or probably even if they're in the minority, they'll do some procedural you know, they'll all say they have to take a bathroom break at the same time or something in the House just to just to avoid the certification of a Trump reelection result. That's what we're heading for. And if you think that I'm exaggerating any of this, you have people go on who go on TV, who, who make a profession such as it is of bringing of allegedly bringing you facts and truth and, and information, informing the American people. And they're talking about how Trump is now a king Would a king allow any individual federal judge to override his policy whims whenever they feel like it or policy directives with their own whims? Would, would a king allow that? No. Would a king have to juggle all these different ways to try to find some budgetary, some budgetary option to build protective fencing on an international boundary as the commander in chief? No, of course not. If Trump's a king, he's really bad at it. He's not a king. He's a president. It turns out he's actually really good at that, which drives the libs completely insane. Producer Mark, I think we've got a, a supercut here of the media completely freaking out that Trump's not going to get removed from office. Play four, please. If there's too much argument, frankly, would unleash a monster. More aptly, it would unleash a monarch. He's a functionally a monarch. The defense team said, in essence, that Donald Trump is a king. He believes he's king now. Mm -hmm. We are not supposed to have a king. That was the main thing, other than, you know, not wanting to have equal rights for women and black people and Native Americans. The, the founders didn't want a king. The president will see himself as uh, one who can emulate right. that kind that of, kind of monarchical power. Find me a president who has this, who has had this much political power. This is going to reverberate for the dysfunction of the Senate and the empowerment of an imperial presidency mm. for who knows how far into the future. So I think these Republicans are shamefully behaving as if the president were a king and they were his patrons. I don't know if these people are insane or if they're dishonest or which combination of those things is most accurate. Who really thinks that the president of the United States is a king? He's going to go out there. He's going to, unlike Hillary, go campaign in Wisconsin. He's going to go campaign in battleground states. He's going to convince the American people. And I guarantee you this, if Trump loses, heaven forbid, but if Trump loses this re-election campaign, 
Republicans aren't going to claim that China hacked the election or Russia hacked the election. We're not going to all march through the streets crying like a bunch of babies. We're going to be annoyed. We're going to say, wow, Americans apparently don't like prosperity, stability, lack of new wars, securing borders. They're not, you know, we're going to have to say to ourselves, well, I don't know what's going on with half this country, but we're then going to regroup and go back and have the fight, the political fight over who should be directing this country who should have the power of the presidency and, and the executive branch. Uh, we know that libs already are preparing to undermine the result and they won't accept it. And they go around telling themselves that Trump is a king. This is not, this is not something that a well-adjusted, intelligent adult can say at this point. In what way is the president a monarch? We, he's, would, would a monarch, let's just, let's just start with this. Would a true autocrat, which is another word they use, imperial, autocratic presidency, a king, monarchical, would, would any of those kinds of leaders put themselves through, allow themselves to be put through, I should say, a two-year special counsel with people going after everyone close to that king, trying to throw them in prison, throwing some of them in prison, and desperately trying to trip up the king's children to also throw them in prison for minor offenses? Is, is that what a king does? And does a king then sit through a removal proceeding against him and allow it to just continue on as it is? No, of course not. Stupid analysis from all these people. These are, you're listening to people, these are people, they're paid millions of dollars, many of them, the ones that you heard from, to go on TV and tell you these things. They're idiots. And they should be ashamed of themselves, but they've conditioned their audience, their audience now like a bunch of, a bunch of, uh, you know, hamsters that know they have to hit the pedal to get the pill or whatever. They, they, They've, they've trained people, Pavlo, Pavlov style, to think that whatever Trump does is autocratic, is tyrannical. He's, he's a king. And so they can't back away from that now because they've elevated, they've taken the dial to 11. They've made this country sound so dysfunctional and terrifying and frightening. They're lying to their audience. They're making their audience dumber, too, but they don't seem to care very much about that. They don't seem to care much about that at all. All hail King Trump. It'd be a fun thing to say just to watch the libs cry. Of course, it's not true. He's not a king. He's just a man. He's a man who's been doing a good job in the role that he has and has, in my view, certainly earned four more years in the job. And that's it. And then after that, he will go back to being a billionaire international playboy with a tremendous media profile who had served his country incredibly well as the commander in chief for eight years. That, that, that's what I think the future holds, friends. It does not hold aut autocracy. It's not going to be North Korea here. Well, Maybe if Bernie Sanders becomes president, then we do have to have a conversation about North Korea. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. To not allow a witness, a document, no witnesses, no documents in an impeachment trial is a perfidy. It's a grand tragedy, one of the worst tragedies that the Senate has ever overcome. America will remember this day, unfortunately, where the Senate did not live up to its responsibilities, where the Senate turned away from truth and went along with a sham trial. This, if the president is acquitted with no witnesses, no documents, the acquittal will have no value because Americans will know that this trial was not a real trial. It had no witnesses, no documents. It is a tragedy on a very large scale. Chuck Schumer's a perfidy. 
How about that? A deceitful or untrustworthy act. That's a good description of Chuck Schumer. No witnesses. Now, there were 17 witnesses. We already know this. Why well, keep saying no witnesses? We have to hear, oh, we have to hear from the new witnesses the Democrats didn't think were important enough before they voted for impeachment. We've gone through this. They, they've tried to game the system in all these different ways. But ultimately, you know, you can show up and tell the teacher for when it's when it's time for your math exam. You know, you can tell the teacher you have a fever and then she'll touch your forehead and it's not hot. And you can tell the teacher that, you know, the dog ate your homework and so you couldn't study. You can tell the teacher that your parents, you know, left you at the bus stop last night by accident and you were there. all. You know, you come up with all these different things. But ultimately, if you can't do the problem set, you can't do the problem set. That's where Democrats are. They, they, they've tried every trick in the book, every lie, every, you know, down on their knees, begging and pleading, you know, shouting down at people from above. Trying to scare them, trying to frighten them, trying to beg them, trying to cajole, trying to convince, all these different things. It's just all noise. It's all noise. It is sound and, it is sound and fury signifying nothing. If you're going to quote Shakespeare, try not to mess it up, Buck. But that's what it is. Uh, it was just blather, as I told you all along. I'm so glad we're going to be past this now. There's more important things in the country to talk about because the entire impeachment process was a waste. There was really not much of a policy argument to be had. There wasn't even much of a constitutional argument because it was so clear what they were doing was a gross abuse of what the founders had in mind with the impeachment power. And so what have we learned from this whole process? We've been really reminded of something. We've learned nothing new. What we've been reminded of is that the swamp, the libs, the commies, the socialists, the never Trumpers, they've just gone full on crazy. And whatever they have to try to do to stop the president, they're willing to do. Whatever lengths they're willing to go to, they're completely fine with. Whatever works or they think might work. Fortunately, as I said, for the good guys, didn't work this time. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't want to comment at this point on what our plans uh, may or may not be with respect to John Bolton. But I will say this, uh, whether it's in testimony before the House or it's in his book or it's in one form or another, the truth will come out as will continue to come out. Indeed, Margaret, one of the astounding things, and this shows you just how disingenuous uh, the president's uh, defense is. On Friday night at midnight, the president's lawyers at the Justice Department revealed to a court that they were holding documents from the Office of Management and Budget showing uh, the personal motivations, we can only assume because they're communications involving the president, vice president, or top people around him about the freeze. Now, they waited until midnight so that senators voting on whether to compel these documents would not have that, that information. That shows you the lengths to which the president's lawyers are going to cover this up, but they're going to fail. No, actually, they're going to succeed in preventing the soft coup attempt from Schiff and Schumer and others. I should say to all of you right now, we should prepare ourselves for this. Uh, this is not going to stop. The impeachment process won't succeed this time, but they're not going to stop talking about this. They are not going to. They haven't learned any lesson. That's to be sure. Um, they still think that this is a way of riling up the left wing base. They think this is a mechanism for increasing voter turnout. They have a lot of plans here. They have a lot of things in mind to continue to do no matter how crazy they seem, no matter how insane this becomes. They're going to keep talking about Bolton. They're going to keep talking about you know, OMB and the freeze. And I mean, who, 
None of these people care. No, they don't care about Ukraine. They don't care about any of this. It's all it's all just for show. It's all acting. Oh, Ukraine. Oh, Ukraine. What are we going to do? These are the same same Democrats who were in power when the Obama administration sat idly by while hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of I mean, it was about a half a million all all in killed in Syria. Not a very large country and a place where we were supposed to have considerable leverage, according to Obama and the U.N. And nope, you don't see them shedding any big tear. And of course, the rise of ISIS and the, the invasion of Iraq by ISIS forces, putting the Kurds in jeopardy, putting Baghdad at one point, even perhaps in jeopardy, all this terrible stuff that happened. And, and but the Ukraine is the thing we're really supposed to all be losing sleep at night about. No normal American voter honestly cares what's happening in Ukraine, and that's okay, because we also don't care about what's happening in a whole lot of other places all over the world that have a lot of problems. And this pretense that it's a a major U.S. national security interest, what's going on in, in Ukraine, hmm, kind of an interest. To call it a major national security interest is, is I think, a, uh, a gross overstatement, an intentional one. Because it allows them then to, to excuse why they spend so much time focusing on this matter. But I, I do have to tell you that they will not let this go. I mean, even though they've lost on impeachment, just like you still hear occasionally about, about Russia collusion that didn't happen, didn't exist, and was all a big lie. You know, that whole thing was extended out so far. The people that were correct on it now look back and look at people like me, who I was right at every stage of Russia collusion. You all know that. I was right early and often. Even my very good friend, Andy McCarthy, who uh, is a fantastic analyst and a really great guy, you know, early on in the Mueller probe, he was saying, look, uh, you know, you got to take a look here. You got to see what's going on. And I was just saying, well, and granted, this was a prediction. This wasn't really based in, in analysis. I was saying this is just an effort to destroy Trump. You're not, we're not going to they're not going to find anything here. This is all a sham. And now Andy's come around to that point of view. He did a long time ago. This is this whole thing is, you know, they cook the books. This was an effort to take down a president, and they're not going to stop doing that um, because they hate him, because he reminds them that they're not as special and smart, and just because they hold certain ideas, it doesn't make them better people than other people. And for a lot of folks, they're unsettled by this. You see, I've spent a little time recently listening to uh, a kind of a contemporary philosopher talk a little about this. I thought it was very interesting that freedom is scary. Freedom is scary for people. We haven't really talked about this much on the show, but there's a reason that there are so many people around the world and throughout history who are really drawn to being told what to do. Sometimes it's through a political system. Sometimes it's through a religious system. People want to be told what to do in a way that they will concede their critical faculties. Now, this isn't true of all political systems or all religions, but it is true of, of some, of both. That there's a mentality that individuals have that when you have to make your own choices, that can be anxiety-producing. And when you have to live with the consequences of your choices, that also creates further fear. People like to be told, this is why you have libs, for example, who want the government to hold them close and keep them safe and warm. They have this need. And they have this belief, they have a conception of what the system in this country of our government is supposed to be, how it is supposed to act. And liberals have really convinced themselves that were it not for rich plutocrats and racist white males, 
the federal government would be able to solve most of the major societal problems. The federal government would make sure that nobody did, went without health care. The federal government would make sure that everybody had a place to live and, and food to eat. And this is the same this is the same mentality that was exploited first by the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, eventually by, of course, the Soviet Union's uh, Politburo and the Central Committee. That was the promise. Go back and read the Soviet Constitution. And initially that can appeal to people. But you see the, the, the problems that they have here are, one, that there are a lot of us, and we tend to be called conservatives in this country, who yearn for freedom, who want it. I want the ability to make choices about my life. I, I want to rise and fall with what I do, how hard I work, how lucky I get, what I decide to spend my time and energy on. I want that for my life. I don't want to be a cog in a machine. I don't want to be an automaton. And this is a very fundamental psychological difference you see between left and right in this country, and it's been around throughout all the ages. Some people really want to be told what to do. Some people think that freedom is, I'm talking about individual freedom now, is a scary thing. And so they either, they either appeal to a religious system that is particularly severe and strict and draconian, or they want a political system that promises to make all their problems, that promises them either uh, promises them utopia. In some cases, it just gives them a sense of, of belonging. And they, they want to be, even, though, even if the Leviathan is a little scary, they want to be huddled alongside it so that they can feel like there's something there for them to protect them. So it's I mean, now a situation in this country where you have a president who comes in who's not a part of that system, who has been very directly attacking that system, one in which the government is full of experts that will do amazing things, and there's this, there's this sort of mythological, bad, conservative white male that's stopping all the good things from happening. I mean, conservative women are a problem, too, but conservative males are the real problem. We're stopping all the bad things from being erased. We're stopping the good things from being instituted by the government. And if only we were out of the way and there was a government that could effectively take away individual choice, right? The only choice that they want people to be able to have is to have an abortion. Other than that, every other choice for an individual is at the government's whim. And they, this appeals to them. That's why you have people that can walk around saying, yeah, we got to do this climate change emergency and we've got to do, you know, they're talking about it. And I'll get into more of this with Bernie Sanders, but they're speaking about Trump as a monarch. And it's Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren who are promising you that if they're elected president, when they take power, that they'll just rule by fiat, by executive order, declare an emergency on climate, declare an emergency on student loans, declare an emergency on whatever, and just do what they want to order the government, do what they want to do. You don't see any libs running around saying, oh, that's, these are socialists that are saying they want to just do what they want to do. Doesn't matter what the Constitution says. Doesn't matter about the legislative branch. Oh, but Trump is the, the guy who just passed a major bipartisan, bipartisan trade deal. He's the, he's the bad guy. Oh, you know, it's amazing, isn't it, how Trump came along and just waved his hand and changed the whole healthcare system. Oh, no, that's right. John McCain decided he wanted to add to his legacy and went against the Republican Party when it really, when it really mattered. And there was, they didn't change, they didn't change healthcare, really. Sort of stayed as Obamacare light. They took away the individual mandate. But why go through that whole process if you're just a monarch, if you're a king? That's absurd, right? You just would say, no, this is, we're going to have a, oh gosh, a free market in healthcare. Oh, and by the way, when I was speaking to you about the fear of freedom, 
There are few places where it's more obvious that there are people that are scared of choice and freedom than in dealing with health issues. Everyone likes to think, I shouldn't say everyone, a lot of people like to think, I know better than this because I've had really good health insurance and really bad health insurance and no health insurance and been disappointed and happy and scared and, you know, made better by doctors all across the spectrum. I mean, you have to take a lot of this into your own hands. You're making decisions about your health, about your life all the time. Just having a little card that says you have health insurance now, that's not going to make all the problems go away. And if you think it will, and if you allow the government to make that promise to you by saying, oh, we're just going to have Medicare for all, and everything is going to be covered, even more than what Medicare covers right now, and you won't have to pay anything for this somehow, or your taxes will only go up on the rich, guess what? There's not going to be choice. Now you're not going to be able to see good doctors, bad doctors. You're going to see who the government tells you to see. But remember, they promise they're going to take care of you. They're taking away your freedom, but they're replacing it with utopia. They're taking away your freedom, but they're going to replace it with all of your needs will be met. We are at an inflection point in this country right now where we either decide as a country, our system of governance will allow for individuals to continue to primarily, nothing is perfect. There's no absolute system. Of course, there are some intrusions in the market from the government. Of course, there are market regulations and there are laws and there's contracts and there's government uh, judicial, uh, there's a judicial system that tries to you know, balance these things. It's not perfect. But do we mostly get to make our own choices or are we mostly told by the government, this is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to get. Sanders and Warren and really the Democratic Party now is promising you the latter. While they talk about Trump as a king, a king who lets you do what you think is best for you, for your life, for your family. That sounds pretty good, except he's not a king. So what exactly is the objection that we run into here again? Well, it's because Democrats want to believe in this system that does this system that exists very much, but not in the way that they think it does. They don't see the flaws. They don't see the ways that government real tyranny inflicts itself on us day to day, that the government makes things more expensive, makes things slower, takes away your rights, takes away your freedoms. That the, that the founding fathers, the vision was for a government of competing interests. That's why we have the separation of powers and a government that believes limitations on government are essential. That's why we have a Bill of Rights. It's why we have the system that we have so that there can be things the government shall not do, cannot do. Don't try to do these things. That has been eroded and eroded over time. And now we're at the point where you just have to wonder if we're all going to turn into the, the people in the matrix that are used as human batteries for all the machines. I mean, that, that's you know, you, you go down, you go far enough down the Bernie Sanders path, they're going to pay, pay for your health care, pay for your housing, pay for your schooling, pay for all these things. And what are you going to pay for? Well, they tell you nothing, but you know that's not true. Freedom is scary. Freedom is a choice. Socialists promise you utopia, but no freedom. We're going to have to make a decision as a country. They can yell and scream about how Trump is a king. But what we know is that the system that they're promising us does not exist and will only take the current failings of the system that we have and magnify them and make them worse. That's what they don't understand. But history and logic tell us that that's exactly what's going to happen. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
Folks, come January 2021, I am really anxious. I, I've been reluctant to give him any nicknames. Uh, he loves giving people nicknames, usually derogatorily. But uh, uh, I do have a nickname I want to give him. Former President, <laughs> former President Donald Trump. Former President Donald Trump. Uh Joe Biden, you do not want to get into the nickname game with, with the Trumpster. You don't want to do it. Sleepy Joe is is a pretty good one, I've got to say. Low, I mean, Low Energy Jeb, he never, Low Energy Jeb never recovered from that. Lil Marco did seem very little afterwards. Uh, I, you know, Sleepy, I've got to say, is, is probably one that's going to stay around. That's a nickname that'll stay around for a while. But Joe Biden has got some problems. You've started to see this a little bit. Joe Biden, who we've got Iowa caucuses happening today, which is great because you get all these people that are paid to present you the political news and they can walk you through the, you know, the Iowa, the the caucus, how the process works. And you got to have 15 percent and the people walk to one side of the room or the other. I mean, whatever. Right. At the end of it, they (laughs) at the end of it, they figure out who the person is that's won the Iowa caucus. Great. That's what we really want to know. You know, they, they have this tradition, this system that's in place. Um, And I I do think that the arguments that even you're hearing from some Democrats, shouldn't they have the Democrat strongholds for the primary? True of Republicans as well. Why should some of these early small states that aren't particularly representative of the nationwide electorate be able to have such a a powerful say in who the front runner is going into other contests? I think that's a legitimate conversation. But Joe Biden's got bigger problems than that right now. The biggest problem is that nobody can really make the case that Joe Biden is an exciting candidate because he's not. And nobody can really make the case that Joe Biden doesn't have a corruption problem that he's going to have to deal with. Savannah Guthrie, who is very good at playing the liberal corporate media game, you know, still kind of a journalist, but also really into being likable. She's she's towing that line from uh, what was her name? The world's most overrated uh, female journalist, um, Katie Couric. Right. She can be a serious journalist, but also she can tell you about how to bake the best cookies in the morning. And we're all supposed to say, oh, but she's not a lib. Right. I mean, she's just yeah, right. Huge lib, by the way. Huge. Here's Joe Biden getting asked a very straightforward question by Savannah Guthrie about his son. Play seven, producer. Has it occurred to you that there's a certain irony here that here the president is accused of and is acknowledged wanting to get information about your son Hunter and his dealings with Ukraine? And this process of impeachment has ensured that everyone knows about Hunter's dealings with Ukraine. That's a good thing. No one's found anything wrong with his dealings with Ukraine, except they say it sets a bad image. Well, do you agree that it sets a bad image? And my son said that. Do you think? it was wrong for him to take that position, no. knowing that it was really because but that he, company wanted access to you. Well, that's not true. You're saying things you do not know what you're talking about. No one said that. Who said that? Well, don't, you said that? that? don't you think that it's just one of those things where people think, well, that seems kind of sleazy. Why would he have that job if not for his who his father was? Because he's a very bright guy. I guess the question I'm kind of asking is, appearance. was it right? His appearance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he said he regretted having done it. Speaks for himself. It's a grown man. Did anyone get an answer out of Joe Biden there? We'll talk more. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
There are three guys as straight racers. Not a joke. There's a guy named Bill Wright, Mouse, the only white guy, and he did all the pools. He was the mechanic. And I said, what am I going to do? He said, come down here in the basement where mechanics, where, where, where all the pool f f filter is. You know, the chain, there used to be a chain that went across the deep end. And he cut off a six-foot length of chain. He folded up. He said, you walk out with that chain. And you walk to the car and say, you may cut me, man, but I'm going to wrap this chain around your head. I said, you kidding me? He said, no, if you don't, don't come back. And he was right. So I walked out with the chain. And I walked up to my car. And they had, they, in those days, you used to remember the straight race. You'd bang them on the curb, get them rusty, put them in a rain barrel, get them rusty. And I looked at him, but I was smart then. I said, first of all, I said, when I tell you to get off the board, you get off the board, and I'll kick you out again. But I shouldn't have called you, Esther Williams. I apologize for that. I apologize, but I didn't know that apology was going to work. He said, you apologize to me? I said, I apologize for that, not for throwing you out, but I apologize for what I said. He said, okay, close the straight razor, and my heart began to beat again. <laughs> That's your Democrat frontrunner, everybody. There he is, Joe Biden, talking about what he dealt with the, the baddest dude in town or at the community pool or whatever it was. Corn pop. Corn pop. I didn't get the references to corn pop for a while because I missed that initial speech. And then I watched it and I, I thought, is this some kind of high concept uh, meme fraud? Like, did they come up with this? And is this, is this some advanced level of, of disinformation? Nope, that's Joe Biden, everybody. The same Joe Biden who, right before we played talking to Savannah Guthrie over the weekend, uh, she asks, notice how she asks the question, don't you think, but I mean, don't you think, she keeps going back to this don't you think construction, where she's essentially pleading with Biden like, hey, come on, man, you might as well, come on, you might as well let it out that we all know that what your son, your son is a doofus, your son is not very bright, and he was leveraging being in your family to make a lot of money in a way that could have affected the international relations of the United States with a country that we're now told is critical, Ukraine, critical to everything going on here. So I, I do think it's fair to ask the question, uh, when does Joe Biden have to really answer for this publicly? They're they're trying to get ahead of this. They're, she's trying to help him. But don't you think, I mean, come on, it looks a little sleazy. You know, do you think if it was a Republican, she'd sit there and stare him in the face and say, so your son was getting this. Don't you think that undermines the United States policy of, you know, they'd really come after him, right? Do you think, I mean, come on, it's it's trying to help him get where he needs to be here, which is, yeah, my son's an idiot, but it wasn't illegal and we've learned and, you know, let's move on and move forward. Instead, he goes, you don't know what you're talking about. He goes on offense first. Look, Joe Biden is not very bright. It's really amazing that in this country, we we seem to not be willing to say what is so plainly obvious about some of these candidates. Yeah, I mean, do I think Trump is a scholar? No. Do I think that Trump has instincts and, and a perception about who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, how to deal with them, and what the real world is? Yes. Am I going to go and ask Trump for his latest recommendation about, you know, Churchill biographies? No, I am not. Okay, we, we don't have that. But does that mean that he'd be a good president? You know who was a, a scholar president? Woodrow Wilson, who was a really bad guy. 
as well as being a bad president. You know, was a scholar president. I think Jimmy Carter was a Rhodes Scholar. So was uh, not the big Rhodes Scholar makes you a special. Well, I guess technically you are a special scholar. Uh, you know, so was Bill Clinton. You know, plenty of scholar presidents out there that didn't really work out the way that we were told they would. Um, but Joe Biden's the opposite of a scholar. <laughs> whatever, whatever the opposite of being. Intellectually gifted is that's where Joe Biden is. The guy has just been he's just been in it forever. You know, he really he really, in a sense, typifies the lib boomer who's just been around forever, never really been very good at anything, but has just accumulated so much time and time and place and time on the job that people treat him like he knows something. It's pretty astonishing. And then you have the other end of the spectrum of uh Time and place, time in the job, having experience. And that would be Buddha Judge as we uh, begin to work our way up to the analysis that I have for you of uh, the Iowa caucuses today and the, the reality that Bernie Sanders may actually win this competition. People forget, by the way, remember Ted Cruz actually did win the Iowa caucuses, uh, beat Trump there. And then after that, it was Trump train all the way. But Ted Cruz did, did pull off a win in Iowa. Uh, you have... Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who was on Fox, I saw on Fox News this morning, he did a, you know, he did a pretty good job for a very far left Democrat, sitting down with Ed Henry, who I think is also a strong, a strong and, and fair interviewer. I mean, he just certainly comes with a bit of a perspective, but he's he's fair. And I think he does a good job. Uh, certainly more fair than it's always interesting to me that you know you can get republic you can get Democrat candidates can go on Fox, including on on some of the opinion shows. And get a very fair shake. I'm not saying that means that the questions are are you know puff piece questions. They're not, but you know Tulsi Gabbard can go on Tucker Show and they can have a real mature conversation without cheap shots. Do you think Do you think that Donald Trump could go on any show at CNN without there? He's the sitting president. He's not even a candidate. He can go on any show on CNN without there being cheap shots. Of course not. Of course not. We have different different rules, different standards for these sides. We all we all know that. Um, but. Pete Buttigieg is trying to tell you, because he's in the top tier for Iowa. He's from uh, next door, Indiana, South Bend, Indiana, perhaps most famous for being the home of Notre Dame University, Bruce and Mark, which is also home to a very highly rated football team, from what I understand. See, I know the things about this stuff. But Mayor Pete wants you to know that... uh, he doesn't need any real experience. It's kind of amazing. This guy's the mayor of not even a big city and not even good at doing that. But elite libs like this guy. Play clip eight. Well, I certainly think that I am better positioned to beat Donald Trump than any of my competitors. Look, do you think Biden uh, can win? What's that? Do you think Biden can win? Look, can I'm, beat? I'm going to support the nominee of my party. Of but course, I'm not asking hoping that. that it'll do you be think me. he can do it? Do you think he can beat Trump, or is he going to uh, will turn out not be sufficient? Here's my concern: uh, if you look at, at the lessons of history over the last half century, every time that we have won, every time my party has won the White House, it has been with a candidate who is new in national politics, who doesn't work in. Washington, or at least hadn't been there very long, and it was opening the door to a new generation of leadership. Carter, Clinton, Obama. They're, yeah. they're fresh, fresher faces. That is the best way to win, and at a moment like this, why, we, why would we take a chance on anything else? Let's put together the best campaign to beat Donald Trump. Interesting pitch, isn't it? 
He's trying to take the, the weakness here of not being a national-level figure. Well, now he's running for president, so people know him. And most people actually have learned how to pronounce his name. Not being a national-level candidate, not being somebody whom you would look at and say, oh, yeah, that's a guy who's in line for the Democrat nomination of the presidency just because he hasn't had that much experience. He's from a mayor from, a, I think, it's the third largest city in Indiana. That sounds right, probably. It's definitely, I mean, it's smaller than... I'm not going to pull a Trump here and get like my states and cities wrong, but it's definitely smaller than uh, Indianapolis, and it's definitely smaller than Fort Wayne. So I think it's got to be third. Maybe it's the fourth largest city in Indiana. I think it might be fourth. But he's saying, oh, look, it, it, vote for me. I'm totally untested and have no experience in this, really. But that works great for Democrats. And you look at it. The, notice, I, I just thought this was a real moment. It almost sounds compelling. I mean, it's it's a clever pitch, right? I'm younger, fresher face, and it's true. I mean, Joe Biden's too old. He's not up for this. But when he's hearkening back to what has worked for the Democratic Party in the past, worked, so to speak, let's let's take a let, let's unpack that for a second. Jimmy Carter was on a results basis. Okay, put aside. Oh, I don't like Trump's tweets. On a results basis, easily the worst president in the post-World War II era. And I think even a lot of Democrats would accept that. I mean, just a disaster of the Democratic Party. Weak, ineffective, not good at the role. Okay. People say he's a nice man. I'm, I've always found everything he said highly unimpressive. But weak, ineffective president. So maybe not a good idea to have a guy that doesn't have the profile for this. If I remember, was he a, was a peanut? He had been a peanut farmer, I believe? Or did he become a peanut farmer afterwards? I forget. I think he was a peanut farmer at one point. Uh, and a peanut is neither a pea nor a nut. Discuss. Producer Mark even got that one. Um, I think uh, it might be a little, a little bit of a generational thing there with Linda Richmond from Coffee Talk. You know, dogs, coffee, bagels, no big whoop. And then you look at Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was only able to win the presidency because of the fluke of a Ross Perot third, candidate, uh, third party candidate. I mean, Clinton didn't even get 50% of the vote, folks. So isn't it interesting that, that when he's pointing to this, you know, he's pointing to those two contenders, it's it's just step back from what we know um, or, or what, we're, what we're told all the time and, and think about those two guys were president of the United States. That's, that's remarkable in its own way. That's a remarkable feat that the Democratic Party got those, those people elected. Uh, Trump, I'm sorry, uh, Clinton and, and Jimmy Carter. But here we are. Mayor Pete saying, vote for me. Now, now we also have to ask, why take a chance on somebody when the country is actually doing so well? This is where the, the pitch you get from all these Democrat Democrats rings so hollow. Why take a chance on me? Take a chance on me. Yeah, it's a song. No, but why take a chance on somebody who is uh, untested, unproven, or even is tested and proven in the case of someone like Joe Biden, when all you're going to do is risk a different trajectory for the country that is objectively doing very, the country is doing very well. They can keep pretending that it's not because they have to, because they want power, but their pitch doesn't work because it's not based in truth. Uh, so I don't think Mayor Pete's going to win this thing, but I'll tell you this. I do think Mayor Pete is going to run again, and I do think that Mayor Pete will become a a force in Democrat politics. He is going to, he is going to uh, be somebody that you're hearing more about and from in the future, to be sure. So get ready for that. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
The reason we have 11 million undocumented immigrants is because our economy needed 11 million more people than our system was prepared to admit. I just wanted to play that for you real quick. We're going to move on from Mayor Pete, the candidate. But, I mean, that's a really dumb thing to say. So when people are always telling me, oh, he's a road Scholar, he's brilliant. OK, that's a stupid thing to say. We, we needed the economy needed 11 million more people. That that's just it's just simply not true. First of all, the number is not we don't even really know what the number is. And how does he even know 11 million people were not necessarily needing the economy? That's not true. A lot of them are working. A lot of them come here and, you know, so, yes, yeah, some of them do work. Some of them don't work. Some of them are joining families that are already here. You know, this, this is a massive assumption built into this. And keep in mind, this often gets left out of the discussion about illegal immigration into this country. Yes, illegal immigrants in certain cases and, in, in, you know, many instances do work very hard. That is true. And you can't take hard work away from people. If they work hard, they work hard. Of course, some of them don't. Some of them don't work at all. Some of them become gang members. I mean, there's a huge population of people we're talking about here. But what is it that makes what, what is it that makes illegal aliens appealing as workers in many cases for companies that employ them, whether it's you know in meat processing plants or in agricultural work? It's that they don't have to pay them on the books. And they're happy to get the wage that they're getting paid because they're not filing taxes. They probably wouldn't have to pay taxes anyway. They'd get money from the government. That's a whole other part of the discussion about what's going wrong with our economy uh, or with our system. But they show up and they don't have to get paid on the book. So guess what? You don't have to pay payroll taxes. You don't have to pay their health care. You know, you know, none of this. And then those illegals, by the way, that stay in the country, their needs. And this is increasingly going to become a huge part of this this debate, this discussion, because most of the illegals that are that are here are not yet what we would consider retirement age. They're not yet, you know, 65 and over. Most of the illegals are still because we had this huge surge in the last 20 years or so. They're you know, there's a bulge of people who are in, you know, their 30s, 40s, 50s. Uh, what happens when millions and millions of people who haven't been paying into the system, haven't been on the books, uh, have to retire? Who are going to want a, a huge increase in their health care expenditures paid for. What happens then? You know, the, these are the discussions. I mean, Democrats aren't prepared for anything. Well, they're prepared to just give them all amnesty. Uh, which then has to the, the same people that are always talking about the system and the need to respect rule of law and how Trump is so terrible because he doesn't do that. Then tell us that 11 million people being here continuously, illegally, and in many cases, continuing to violate the law with false documents, fake Social Security numbers, signing official documents they're lying on. I mean, there's a lot of illegality on top of just the illegality of status also never gets talked about by the mainstream press. They pretend like every every illegal who's here, if you believe MSNBC, CNN, The New York Times, Washington Post, and the rest of their sort of hanger-on publications. Um, all of the illegals who are here are blameless valedictorians who are better than Americans, and we're lucky that they're here. That's, that's the story we've been told for a very long time. And if you bring up the number of people that have been killed in drunk driving accidents by illegals, you know, thousands of people over a number of years, if you bring up the number of people that have been uh, that have been killed by in the opioid epidemic by drugs pouring into this country, in many cases sold in communities where illegals are providing either cover or actually the distribution for these drugs to uh, Americans. Uh, you're a bad person. If you talk about MS-13, you're a bad person. Any of these things make you a bad person. That's the story that you have. And that's why someone like Mayor Pete will say 11 million undocumented immigrants because our economy need 11 million more people. Okay. Um, like I said, that's just not true. But then I would want to ask them, 
okay, does our does our country need another 11 million more illegals? And the unemployment rate's what four ish percent? I can't even remember what it is right now. It's very very low. Um, the unemployment rate is the lowest it's been in decades. Do we need 11 million more people? If not, why not? Won't they do jobs? Can't we find people from all over the world who will do jobs more cheaply than American workers? Mayor Pete's supposed to be a heartland candidate, right? Talks about the heartland. Isn't that supposed to mean that Americans' interests, their economic interests come first before people who come from all over the world, including people coming illegally from all over the world? Democrats have no, have no answers for this. Oh, and of course, he has to carry water for the left on how it's not an this is going to be a non-acquittal acquittal you're going to hear that a lot this week when the senate finally votes to say shut it down by the way the senate is doing the republican senate is doing or majority senate is doing what i told them to so that makes me happy at least some of them do listen to this show so maybe maybe i had some small hand in trying to convince some of them don't be an idiot shut this thing down it's ridiculous uh producer mark please play clip three is an acquittal legitimate? Is it a legitimate verdict of acquittal? I mean, it counts by the procedures of the Senate, uh, but I don't think that it has the legitimacy of vindicating this president because it's very hard, even for Republican senators, and I'll be curious to see uh, what they say on television today, very hard for them to actually look a, a voter or a camera in the eye and say that this president is a good leader for the United States of America. It's a... Legitimate, non-legitimate. It's a, it's a legitimate, illegitimate acquittal is what you're going to hear. I mean, it is technically an acquittal, but it's not really an acquittal. There we go. So it's more, more of a genius of Mayor Pete, which I like to call him mostly not because I think the mayor title is something that we all have to care that much about, but because it's easier to say than his last name. Um, I do not think he's going to win. Who do I think is going to win the Iowa caucuses? So I'm going to start making predictions, start just dropping prediction bombs left and right. I think it's going to be Bernie Sanders. I think Bernie Sanders is going to come out of his thing in the number one seat. And what does that mean, not just for the general election? What does that mean for the Democratic Party and for America, my friends? Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I think he's a communist. I mean, you know, look, I think of communism when I think of Bernie. Now, you could say socialist, but did he get married in Moscow? And that's wonderful. Moscow's wonderful. Might have been the honeymoon. You don't sure. think necessarily, well, whatever. But you don't necessarily think in terms of marriage, Moscow. And it's wonderful. I'm not <laughs> knocking it, but I think of Bernie sort of as a socialist, but far beyond a socialist. Elizabeth Warren. At least he's true to what he believes. That's one thing. Because you mentioned now Elizabeth Warren. She's not true to it. I call a fairy tale. Because everything's a fairy tale. That's how Pocahontas got started. Everything's a fairy tale. This woman can't tell the truth. First of all, I love that Trump calls him a communist. Because I've been calling him Comrade Bernie for a while. Because this guy, we can't transition right away. And as I've discussed with you, if you go back even to the original Marxist thinkers and writers, always worth noting that Stalin himself really started out as a pundit, folks. Remember that as you know, you listen to all these people going on TV. It was really he worked as an as a community organizer and as a pundit. That's how Joseph Stalin got his start. Oh, actually, at a seminary first. <laughs> first, he was at a seminary and he got kicked out. So the seminary knew something was up, and then he was a community organizer and a pundit, writing, um, you know, writing Marxist radical tracts for little left-wing publications that they would start on illegal presses in the Soviet Union. 
but Bernie is someone who took oh by the way the, the transition was what I was going to speak about there and there was always this consideration as to whether you had to go through a capitalist phase first before you go to a socialist society and then there's this discussion about well if you have a, a communist revolution if you have a communist central party central committee that can direct things maybe you lump jump lump uh, jump right to a full-on socialist system and you don't have to transition through a capitalist uh, capitalist bridge first. Uh, we are a still capitalist country with some socialist sectors and some socialist underpinnings. Uh, we are becoming more socialist as a country, not less, even as we're becoming more wealthy because people start people uh, forget just how amazing the system we really have is. I was actually speaking to uh, some of my family members last night just about how when you think about TV, this is just I know this is a little thing, but I remember when I was in college and I wanted to get a TV and it was, I, you know, I finally had, I, we had a, a big common room that I was sharing with three other guys and we want to get a big TV. And you, know, you remember you'd go to the store, you go to like your appliance store or whatever, you know, the Sam Goody or the, uh, we had a thing in New York called the Wiz. I don't know if that was a thing anywhere else, but you know, you got to, the stuff that came before Best Buy basically. And you'd go in there and you'd buy, and TVs could be, really expensive like i remember a friend of mine bought maybe i was right out of college bought a tv by uh, i don't remember what the company was called i don't i'm not even sure it exists anymore and he spent like four or five grand on a television you know and, and people got these plasma displays all the, i mean now you go to you go to any any store that sells tvs you know best buy is one that i go to uh, or you just go online and you can buy a like 60 inch crystal clear 4000 whatever whatever you know what's the, the, the what's the dots called when it's the you know dots per inch or something like that Do you know what I'm talking about when you have the P, is it pixels pixel yeah thank you 4000 pixels whatever it is. you buy this, a, a TV that looks like it's out of a Star Trek movie from you know 20 years ago and it's going to cost you like 5 or 600 bucks i mean maybe some of you are like buck that's not a good TV but you know you it's amazing and i just bring it up because these are consumer goods. There's a huge incentive. People want to have televisions. Pretty much almost every American I know has at least a TV. Not everyone. Some don't. I didn't for a number of years. I used to like to brag about that, but then I got, I started to get it weird, so I had to get a TV. Uh, and, and you see how dramatically, even in a short period of time, it's gotten better, cheaper, bigger, faster, more amazing. That's that's the system working the way we want it to work. So now everybody can basically have an awesome TV because of market incentive, not because the government says we will make amazing television to come off of the assembly line that the commissars are directing. No, that doesn't work. Right. It's like the Soviets had glass factories that just produce a lot of broken glass like they, they don't know how to do these things. It doesn't work when people don't care. It doesn't get better when people don't get incentivized. These are basic structural truths of our economy, of our system. You know, I remember this. I even think about how, uh, you know, when you when when you deal with any company, any business in this country, and it's and it really frustrates you. Imagine what it's like when you have no choice. You know, over the weekend, I I remember I had to take the subway at one point, and I just thought about you know you know what the problem with the New York City subway system is. I mean, there's a lot of problems, by the way, the stench of urine. People shouting crazy things in your face, a lot of trash. There's rats the size of uh, small ponies running around. I mean, you know, in the, in the in between the tracks. So 
there's there's problems to be sure, but the biggest problem is that you don't like it. Tough. There's no other. There's, no, there's nowhere to go. There's no other subway system. There's no. I mean, you can leave the city, obviously, but there's no competition. We all we intuitively understand these things. Why do you get so frustrated standing in line of the DMV? Because what are you gonna, what are you going to do? You know, and and this is where the system falls down. The left doesn't understand this. The moment that you only have one person writing the checks for something like health care, for example, you're going to have big problems. And what are you going to do? Well, what will happen is you'll just end up having private insurance for people who can pay for it here, and they'll have really their own health care system and industry. And then you'll have this huge public market that's slow, inefficient, and crappy. And then you'll just get into debate as to you know whether you're going to out. I mean, what are you going to outlaw private insurance? I mean, that's probably not going to happen. But there'll be people that say that there sh- you shouldn't be able to opt out of the government system. And but we have we've run these experiments. I mean, I bring up the TV issue because some of you now are probably sitting around, and if you're not watching this on your TV, you can watch Pluto TV channel two forty eight the first on your uh, Roku. I believe. Oh, no, is Pluto? Yeah, Pluto TV is on Roku. Bam, exactly. So you can watch it there on your television screen. Uh, you're looking at something that. When I was in when I was in college, if you had the TV that you had now, you'd be like a super rich person. I mean, it's just not it was unthinkable. And that wasn't even that long ago. So that's because the system works and incentivizes people. Bernie Sanders either doesn't understand that or just rejects it because he believes fairness is more important than excellence. And that a society rooted in fairness first and equality of outcome, not equality of opportunity, is going to be one where everyone is happier and better off. Meanwhile, all I can think about is that feeling of waiting in line at or, you know, even waiting in line at the airport TSA line, you know, waiting in line. And that's gotten a little better. What's made that better, by the way? Oh, that's right. The private sector has stepped in. Now you've got TSA clear and you've got TSA, you know, pre and these other things that you have to pay for that, you pay for these systems. But it's getting better. I mean, could could airport security be a lot better if it were privatized? I think the answer is most obviously, yes, it could. But now you've got 70,000 or so TSA employees across the country. They're unionized and mobilized and they're Democrat voters. You're never going to get rid of it. Bernie Sanders offers you the TSA-ification of the U.S. economy. Yeah, there'll be some private sector ways that you can get around certain things and there'll still be, you know, business. I'm not saying it's going to all be state run enterprises and you know he can't take us to full communism he doesn't he won't have that much power as a president although it is noteworthy that both sanders and warren are increasingly just telling their followers we're just going to do big things even if it runs roughshod over legislative priorities even if it's something that you would think you would think we would know the president shouldn't be able to do but they'll just do it because it's to borrow those uh, immortal words from Obama, it's the right thing to do. That's what he always say. It's the right thing to do, says the president at the time, who's a Democrat. So then you get into the concerns, though. I mean, so, so you got Trump saying Bernie's a communist. And then you had this report yesterday on how John Kerry, who was a secretary of state under Obama, the guy is a... I mean, I've never I've never heard him say anything that sounded insightful or intelligent, but, you know, he speaks a little French. He's married to a super rich lady and lives in a seven million dollar mansion in Boston. And so we're all supposed to think that the guy really has great ideas for America. I'm I'm I've always found him deeply impressive and he lost to George Bush in that reelection bid. So he has been the Democrat candidate. 
before, so he knows something about this. He knows how to lose, but he did run a campaign, so let's be fair about that. He, he did get all the way through the primary, and he was, according to a news report, take it as it is, overheard talking about what would be required for John Kerry at this stage of the game to get into the presidential race, which was startling for a lot of us. I saw that. I said, oh, gosh. First of all, my, my mind immediately goes to if John Kerry is even having conversations about this with friends, what do you think Hillary Clinton's doing behind the scenes? I mean, Hillary has a plan. I'm telling you, she's got a binder this thick, hopefully not full of more classified information, but a binder this thick with, you know, the, the plan to execute Hillary's reentry into the race. But put Hillary aside for a second. Why? Put her aside. Uh, you have John Kerry talking about this, and then he he let off some tweet, and in the tweet he said that the, the report is totally false, and he even dropped an f bomb in the tweet. I believe he has since deleted it. But I know, what? Ooh, John Kerry being all being all aggressive, you know, dropping an f. He he wrote it out too. Dropped an f bomb in a tweet from his official account about how he never would have, you know. Blanking said that, and he he was clearly very upset. He's just going to support Joe Biden, who's great. But here's what really happened. I mean, do I believe that he probably said this to somebody? Sure, because I don't think John Kerry really thinks he's going to get into the race. But I also think John Kerry recognizes that the Democrat Party is in trouble, real trouble, because one of their main ways— of getting away with what they do and, and who they are as a party is they always say, no, we're not socialists. We're just more we're just more fair, caring versions. We're t- talking about economics now. We're just more fair and we care more about the poor than Republicans. But we want to, uh, you know, more money for middle class families. And we w- they want prosperity, too. They're not socialists. They just think they'll do it better than Republicans. That case becomes very different when your party has to rally behind somebody who goes, no, no, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a socialist. I'm like a little like kind of social. I'm a socialist. Bernie is saying that. He has been saying it all along. He is a straight-up socialist. So if he is the, the standard bearer, the Democratic Party is going to have to live after a Bernie Sanders race or even after a Bernie Sanders presidency, theoretically, with the reality that they've had a, a, a socialist candidate as their standard bearer. That's not just going to go away. You know, I mean, if the Republicans ran an anarchist or something, I mean, that just that wouldn't just be a thing that happened one time that nobody ever talks about again. And in a sense, what Bernie's doing is making Democrats lives harder because they want what Bernie wants, really. He's just honest and open about it and wants to move faster toward it. They want incremental steps towards socialism. Bernie Sanders is like, let's take a big leap deep into the pool. Cannonball. Bernie's just going to jump right in. Well, if the Democratic Party has to rally behind somebody who will say that, then we have to understand. Then they have to deal with the new reality of a Democratic Party that has to defend having had an open socialist as their standard bearer. That's something that I think they're not ready. That's what John Kerry, who is clearly of the Democrat establishment elite. I mean, he's as much a member of that as anybody, you know, just not quite as powerful as, say, the Obamas or the Clintons, but very much of that echelon. And he knows what this means. And he's concerned. That's why he really does want Biden to win, because at least if Biden wins the nomination, 
the libs get to spend four more years saying, see, we would have had a, a moderate centrist Democrat like Joe Biden, you know, tried and true as the vice president and decades of experience and blah, blah, blah. And we now we and everything Trump does will say, oh, but instead we have Trump. But if they run an octogenarian socialist. If they run an octogenarian. It's fun to say that word on air. Uh, an old dude as a, uh, who's a socialist. Guess what? Whenever they complain about Trump on this or that, we get to turn around and say, yeah, but you guys wanted to make a socialist the president of the United States. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I loved this work. So I had four to six-year-olds in special education, and I loved my babies. And I probably would still be doing this work today, but by the end of my first year, I was visibly pregnant. And the principal did what principals did in those days, wished me luck, and hired someone else for the job. People have raise questions about the truth of this story from Elizabeth Warren um, based on the timeline of when she left her job and when she was pregnant. But I leave that aside for a moment. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is, I think, every in many ways, every bit as willing as Bernie Sanders to go in a pretty radical socialist direction. She's just more sly about it. She's a little less open about the overall or, or the long-term intention uh, I do think that President Trump calling saying that she's a fairy tale Warren, that's going to be a reminder that my friends, she had the it was the most bizarre, unexpected, out of the blue, self-inflicted wound in American politics that I can really think of. I mean, it wasn't on the same of the same scale of seriousness, certainly as Anthony Weiner sending out the photo situation. Remember when that happened? He was going to be the mayor of New York, by the way. I mean, everybody that I know in New York politics who knows what they're talking about always says that he was if he hadn't done that whole thing. Anthony Weiner, the congressman from Queens, Democrat, of course, was going to be the mayor of New York City. Um, And instead, he ended up going, I think, the federal prison for 18 months, two years, something like that, uh, for sexting with an underage girl. Uh, But he sent out that photo and that was a particularly egregious unforced error in politics to be sure because uh, he tweeted it out remember he shared a photo and everyone was whoa what was that and then he deleted it um, but you also have Elizabeth Warren coming out with the I'm actually a Native American and then we look at the informators 1 1024th Native American which is less than like most Americans just tend to be anyway and I remember calling out CNN on that and CNN's head of PR trying to uh, tangle with the Buckster on Twitter. You didn't even watch our coverage. Yeah, I did. It was laughable. CNN trying to carry Warren's water, and they realized the buckets all have holes in them. <gasps> Uh-oh! Turns out you can't convince the American people that being 1 1,024th Native American is something that you should spend your entire adult life talking about and using to your advantage. My friends, Elizabeth Warren is a socialist, but she's also a racial fraudster. That's, that's an important thing. Think about all all the criticisms they have of Trump. Oh, they say this and that and Trump University, and they bring up all these things. Elizabeth Warren was an adult who walked around telling people that she was of a different ethnic background than she was with a straight face because it helped her. And she did it, and she lied about it for years and years, decades. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
So I had a great time watching the Super Bowl with uh, family last night. It was uh, it was a good game. I uh, ate a lot of barbecue, which there is good barbecue here in New York City. I know those of you in the rest of the country are like, oh, no, there's not. It actually is a real thing. It's not as good. I'm not going to – I'm not trying to bring – yeah, it's fine. Bring the ruckus here, but they got good barbecue. It's sure. a thing that exists. I'm most shocked. You watched the Super Bowl. I watched the entire wow. game of football that occurred last night. I'm shocked. All of the four quarters uh-huh. on the field. Is that the only football game you've watched? This it is season? the only football yeah. game I watched the entire season. But it was fun because my dad, who actually knows you and my dad, have a lot of fun talking. He actually knows a lot about. He's a normal football. person. A normal human being. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he he told me about this Mahomes fellow. Sure. Who was who was very amazing? I have to say, I was very impressed. Uh, he wasn't so great the first three quarters, but yeah, but then he, he well, it. he apparently has been able to uh, come from behind a ten a, a double digit deficit three times in the playoffs. Yeah. The Every only game. person ever yeah. to do that was pretty amazing. He's the new face of the NFL what, easily. Yeah, he was. I mean, he's obviously an incredible athlete. What's uh, what were you, what were the producer Mark takeaways? From yesterday? Yeah, from the game. Uh, just that Kyle Shanahan, the coach of the 49ers, now has blown the two biggest fourth quarter leads in Super Bowl history. Ooh, that's not a fun, that's that's not not a fun, fun staff for you to have as a coach. No. He was the offensive coordinator of the Falcons when they blew a 28-3 lead to the Patriots Oof. a couple years ago. Oof. That's yeah. no fun either. So, I mean, the 49ers played a very good game just at the end. They crumbled in Kansas City. They have the most explosive offense in the league, and they showed why. Yeah, no, it was a fun game to watch. It was. So, you know, I, I actually, it actually was good in that it was close enough that it was worthwhile. I I remember, I don't know if it was last year, or the year before, I did again watch the Super Bowl, and it was like paint dry, like it, nothing happened for a very yeah. Long I think time. last year, the year before, it was just awful. It was really bad. It was yeah. a really bad game, and then you're kind of like ah. Uh. So anyway, I, you know, we're not a sports show, so I don't have much to say about it other than I did watch. So those of you who want to know if I'm an American, I am. I watched the Super Bowl. I enjoyed it. I ate a barbecue, which I will say there was pork belly and there was brisket. And the brisket is still my favorite, but pork belly, when it's done right, is very exciting, oh, yeah. too. A little sizzling pork belly? Yeah. yeah. It really it really got... What was, what was the producer... Tell me about the food. That's what I really want to know. Food, what do you guys uh, have? We had some sandwiches with prosciutto and mozzarella, some wings, boneless, um, make it a little less messy. There were cookies. Uh, there was buffalo chicken dip that my wife made. You and the missus, just the, you two chilling, or do you guys go no, somewhere? No, there was a bunch of friends there. A bunch there. of friends yeah. over. Nice. Okay. All right, good stuff. Mm-hmm. Did you didn't did you bet anything on the game or not? No, yet? I was in New Jersey though, so I could have. Ah, interesting. Yeah. New Jersey. When are you going to be a New Jersey resident? Actually, uh, that was part of the reason we were in New Jersey yesterday. We ah. should be within the next six weeks or so. Oh, really? Yeah. As long as our application gets accepted. Congratulations. Well, I mean, you know, best wishes, and we'll say congratulations when it goes through, but it sounds like that'll be- I will be a lot less irritable when I only have a 20-minute commute. That'll be way better. Rather than a 90-minute commute I have now. Oof. That is is some brutal stuff. Well, um, I I wanted to have somebody who actually watches football talk to you guys about that, so you can share your thoughts. You can send any- Remember, if you have any sports-specific queries, you can send them to- producer mark in our in our roll call session and he can he can handle some of those but i did watch the halftime show which is something that is cultural and therefore uh and music based which i know a little bit more about than i do about uh professional athletics and and here's what i'll say about this and i'm not again people are entitled to they can like whatever they like about it here is how mediaite reed reed richardson of mediaite his headline for the Super Bowl show was Shakira and J-Lo blow minds with sultry, age-defying Super Bowl halftime show. Quote, the most impressive athletes in that stadium tonight. <laughs> 
okay, look, guys, we got to get a grip here. Right? We got we to gotta settle this down a little bit. All right. I, I, will, I will agree that, you know, it was that, that Jennifer Lopez. And I, this is, see, this gets tough because we're never, we're never really supposed to speak about, especially w- women when they get to a certain age, if you talk about, quote, looking good for their age. You're you're just stepping around uh, stepping around uh, a minefield, and you got a blindfold on, and you're just hoping that you make it through, right? I mean, so that's not a good idea. I, I know that you don't ever be like, oh, she looks great for her age. That said, on an artistic level, I will just point out that Shakira, to me, is a far better singer. That much was apparent from the Super Bowl show, um, and I would also argue. Well, look, I'm I'm not a Jennifer Lopez fan at all. I have to say this. I'm not a Jennifer Lopez fan. I I put her in the same sort of Springsteen-esque category in terms of overratedness. Springsteen is a great musician. I'm not going to say that's not the case. He's obviously a very, very talented musician. I do not think Jennifer Lopez is a super talented singer. I'm just going to—I and I, I mean, as an actress, she's okay. Uh, she's—I don't know. I'm just look. I'm not a fan. Different different strokes are different folks. Whenever I say this, I feel a little bit like Ben Wyatt in Parks and Rec when everyone else is in love with um, uh, the I forget the the tiny horse, and he doesn't understand that, and everyone hates him for that. You know, there are certain things, certain cultural icons, people, individuals that if you don't agree, are amazing. You know, everyone. This is the, the, a, a joke that I remember was made. Uh, well, anyway, uh, it's. I was thinking back to the, the some of the, the South Park episodes back in the day, but you know, you, you have to. You're told you have to like Jennifer Lopez. I don't understand. It's just not my thing. I, I just. I'm not a Jennifer Lopez fan. I don't know what else to say. And everyone's like, "Oh, she's 50." I, I did it have to be? And I'm not prudish. I, I although I did think some parts of Game of Thrones actually went too far, even for me. You know, I I think that. You know, art has to push boundaries and, you know, creativity. I'm not like the, you know, the a fundamentalist over here who wants to turn the town into Footloose or whatever. I've never even seen that movie, but I know the reference. You know, I want people to dance and have fun. I like to have fun. Um, you know, you may have picked up for listening to the show. I, I, I appreciate lovely ladies. You know, there's a, so... I'm just trying to say I don't get it with Jennifer Lopez. I don't get it. I don't know. People make such a big deal out of, out of how amazing she is and... Uh, and then there was a little bit of a discussion over the Super Bowl halftime show. We, we, and this is one of these things, too, where you say, oh, Buck, does really matter. Well, you know, culture matters. And culture, certainly a lot of the commercials that were run during the Super Bowl, as I was sitting there watching them, very clear political messaging. And most of it was not conservative. So that's one part of this. And you could say, Buck, does it matter? Well, yeah, guess what? People who watch the Super Bowl vote because there's like 50 million people that watch or whatever it is. So it does matter. Uh, these things do matter. We can pretend that they don't. We can try to retreat into, let's just like wear tri-corner hats and talk about the Tea Party and the Constitution. And like, that that has its place. But guess what? You got to also engage in the culture. Uh, so, I mean, Shakira, I'm I'm more, I'm just more pro-Shakira than I am pro-Jennifer Lopez. I don't know how else to say this. I just, I think that Shakira is just more talented. Both of their, their bodies of work, bodies of work, talking about their music, um, not particularly impressive. Not Super Bowl worthy, in my opinion. You, know, you bring Aerosmith up there, even if you think Aerosmith's kind of old uh, or whatever, you know, you got to respect. I mean, Aerosmith's, you, st- you still hear Aerosmith's songs, you're like, that's a great song. You don't hear a Jennifer Lopez song and say that's a great song. It doesn't really? happen. 
Doesn't happen. You don't think so? No, come on. What You're is what is Jenny from the Block kind of guy? No way. Oh. No way. Listen, do I think she's the best artist ever? But she has some catchy songs. I Can't deny know. that. I mean, it's it it just okay. Was it a little too? What I was most annoyed about, they were both lip syncing. I hate that. Yeah. Absolutely despise when they do. I know the Super Bowl kind of makes you, but let them sing. Yeah, no, I mean, they, they yeah. should be, there's, it should be actual vocals being done instead of uh, any lip syncing. I would also just say, you know, there was the whole sort of stripper pole thing. And I think a, that was a nod to Hustlers. Was, yeah, which I have another, I want to I speak about that a little bit, but because uh, I got some thoughts on that. I watched that movie. But producer Mark, if you had Mini Mark, which you know is at some point in the future, sure. we're gonna have you know Mini Mark will be a thing, or or Marquette, you know, if you want to go that direction. No time soon, but sure. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah exactly. we're going with this. I'm not trying to rush you. I'm just saying at some point. Yeah. But I mean, would you if you had had like your eight year old sitting there, because you're gonna have kids before me, uh, would you have been would you uh, have been comfortable with that halftime show? This is kind of where we. I mean, listen, they're gonna see worse in school. <laughs> really? Okay. Like with right. the other kids and stuff. What am I? What am I going to stop them from watching? That I, I, did, I just felt like it was a little. It was a little bit more, you know, a, a little bit more class and elegance would have gone a long way for me. That's all, you know. That's I, the I, most risque they've gotten since Janet Jackson, though. Yeah, that's yeah. Well, I remember that. I'm I remember they that. Let them I was go watching. that far. I yeah. No, that, that, that's all true. But he, you know, he mentioned this movie Hustlers. I, I think that that movie is is uh, it, it's reasonably well done for what it is. But I think the whole story is horrifying. You have women who are who are working as exotic dancers and who are strippers and and who are drugging men uh, and then taking a lot of money from them while they're drugged. And this is like highly unethical and gross on a number of levels. But one part of this, I'm sitting here watching uh, watching this movie. And, yeah, they don't. There's a little bit of like a girl power. Hear me, you know, hear me. You know, I'm whatever uh, powerful woman thing that's going on with this. A little bit of like a feminist, neo-feminist situation with it. But when you're drugging people like that, you could kill someone. I mean, it would not be hard. You got alcohol. They're mixing it with you know MDMA, MDMA and ketamine, and they don't know what somebody's already taken before they're putting other drugs in their system. They very easily could have killed somebody in this process. Uh, you know, they're, they're drugging human beings. And and they're not treated like like this was a horrific like this is a really bad crime. I mean, the, the society celebrates it. So I think the movie Hustlers is I, I got big problems with it, big problems with it. Um, and I just think it's also it was just very there's a very anti male. OK, yeah, there's some guys that are gross and that throw money around at strip clubs that are mean to strippers at the strip club. But there are a lot of other guys who are, you know, taking care of their wife and their kids and their daughters and sending them to school and paying the bills. That's like most of us. Well, I don't do that, but, you know, that's like most American men. Um, I got to have kids before I can do that. So, anyway, I, I was not a fan of the of the Super Bowl uh, halftime show. I did not think it was pretty good. I, I didn't think the music was very good. Um, I, I just, I know they, it seemed like they were going for a particularly Latin vibe. It was in Miami. I understand some of that. Uh, I did not even know. Did you know who the, the hip-hop artists were? There's a fellow who came out with, like, a silver... Like a jacket, or yeah, people at the party said the name, but I don't. I don't remember. know. Who, I didn't know who it was. I figured it was going to be Pitbull because you know, Mr. That's what I would have thought too. Yeah, yeah. Everyone was. There were actually prop bets on that. Would Pitbull come out at the halftime show? He did uh, not. Oh, yeah. I mean, that would have been the the obvious choice. So I, I guess I guess not. But anyway, some people were very upset about the 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 gyrations and the uh, the dancing and all this other stuff. 
I don't know. Personally, I don't want to see Jennifer Lopez do those dances. I don't want to see her do any dances, but that's me. To each his own. To each his own. You Springsteen lovers out there, you still listen to this radio show, and you know I'm never I'm never moving off that base. I'm never leaving my Springfield is the most overrated of all time thing, so that's not going to happen. But Jennifer Lopez is like top five most overrated female entertainers, in my, in my opinion. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm just going to say it. People get all mad at me. I'm like, what's the what's the really awesome movie that she's been in? What's the really great song that she has? What's the someone explain this to me? When have you said, wow, is you know what her best performance actually was probably? Selena, which was one of her very first. So I'll give her credit for that. But the rest of it has been very mediocre. A lot of like the system and the media and you know, people in Hollywood just sort of pushing along the the greatness of Jennifer Lopez. Shakira, I'm a little more I'm a little more into the Shakira vibe, but all right, I'm gonna stop talking about this now. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Team, I've been trying to do some research on my own so I can come up with the best analysis possible. Look, I'm not a I'm not an MD. I'm not an epidemiologist or a microbiologist, but I I do have a pretty good track record of determining based on media narrative and generated versus authentic outrage what the you know what risks we really run with different situations and how frightened we should be and this brings me to the coronavirus it's getting a lot of attention now it obviously has spooked the markets of it and and certainly in China and also here in the United States so there there are concerns about how much this could spread how quickly i think now about 14 or 50,000 infections in China they say about 300 people have died from it and they're building these hospitals. It's kind of an amazing engineering feat just to watch these hospitals get built in a matter of days in China. It's a reminder that you know things don't have to take in this country because of a lot of our you know, public sector regulations about whether it's building a bridge or building a building or whatever. It can take forever and be way too expensive. Uh, we have the technology and the know-how to do these things very quickly when we want to. But you know, when I was researching more and more about China's uh, coronavirus situation i've also was going back to well when when does a disease become a pandemic how does a disease become a pandemic and it's usually a combination of things i started researching more and more and i'll probably be talking about this in in pieces here and there on the show uh, about the epidemic the epidemics in new york city here having to do uh with different bacterial infections in the water um, that has always been a, a cholera being the probably the most notable. But there's uh, people have been uh, suffering in New York City, stretching really in the in the 19th century was when it was particularly bad. So in the 1800s, uh, they would suffer from outbreaks of cholera that would kill thousands of people. And it's very interesting because you look at the factors. I mean, it's obviously really horrific and tragic. But when you look at the factors for uh, from a public planning perspective, what leads to a pandemic or what are the factors that are in place when you have a pandemic? You, you have overcrowding, right? Lack of sanitary conditions, inept governance or government being inept. And also another one that tends to be present is effect, an affected population that is not powerful and politically uh, able to mobilize. So diseases, particularly diseases like cholera, which is just a, a, bac- a, a bacteria that is, it is waterborne, and once it gets into people's systems, 
Now, keep in mind, the 19th century, they didn't really understand. It wasn't until the middle of the 19th century that there was really any understanding of microbiology and the role of disease or the role of, of, of um, bacteria and viruses in disease. Uh, so when there were major outbreaks of uh, cholera in New York City in the what the uh, there was one in the 1830s, there was one in the late 1840s. Uh, they thought it was bad, uh, essentially rotting air from corpses. So it was the air that came off of a corpse that was what spread the disease. Um, they did not understand that it was actually, and I hope none of you are eating right now, but it comes from human secretion. We could say that's how you get. And part of the problem of dealing with something like cholera is that those human secretions are uh, um, that is the primary symptom. And if you are living in highly, highly close quarters with very limited sanitation and a tremendous amount of um, you know people coming into contact with each other day in and day out, that's a major uh, indicator for how a pandemic will get going. Uh, where thousands of people died. There were outbreaks of this. You know, New York City had an aqueduct system that came into play in, I believe it was the 1850s, 1840s, 1850s. And this was the largest city in the country then. It's still the largest city in the United States. But people in the Five Points neighborhood, which if you've ever seen the movie Gangs of New York, it's about the Five Points. Although it's a little bit later. It's later in the century than these periods I'm talking about, which were primarily... Areas full of uh, Irish immigrants. Um, the Five Points had a lot of Irish immigrants, and they were fleeing the potato famine, um, or the Great Famine, as it's called in Ireland. People externally to Ireland call it the potato famine. But my ancestors on one side are potato famine refugees. Uh, there was a particularly nasty, exploitative system of land ownership in Ireland where you had the... Uh, English. Well, see, I guess I'll, I'm talking a little bit more about this than I had anticipated, so we can dive in a little bit of the history, and then we'll get into a, into roll call in a second. But first, we start with the potato famine, and then we'll get into uh, then we'll get into how cholera broke out and what that tells us about coronavirus. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. So you have what's going on, what uh, what is effectively a fungal infection, a recurrent fungal infection of potatoes, which were the primary crop and really the only crop that much of the Irish uh, tenant farmers planted at all. And they did not understand, it was not understood scientifically, that that fungus could, could be cyclical if you took potato infected with it and you just piled them up in the corner of the field and left them there, the fungus would seep back into the soil and you would have recurrent uh, infection year after year. So the potato famine lasted, I think it was for four years from 1845 to 1849. And you had Irish tenant farmers who there was a, a kind of a landlord class that owned the land. But then there were also these middlemen who were just told, we'll get whatever you have to get from the tenant farmers for the, for the landlords back in England primarily. And there was a lot of exploitation. And then you had Irish dying. You had about a million people starved to death. is isn't really talked about very much. Uh, in this country anymore, but a million people starved to death over the course of four years. That's a that's massive. Ireland only had a population of about eight million. The whole country at the time, and they not only did they come over here on ships, but they came over to the United States, including my ancestors, uh, on uh, after having had their way paid in some cases by the. Uh, English landlords of these farms because they just didn't want to deal with the, with the starvation and the people that were 
so desperate. So they just said, go to America. They were they were they were like, get out of here, go to America. So the Irish showed up with nothing. I mean, absolutely desperately poor. And in some cases, they suffered from horrible disease on that passage. In fact, they were they called them coffin ships with the Irish arriving sometimes because so many hundreds of people would have been sickened and many, many would have died from diseases like uh, cholera and dysentery, uh, typhus. Because once you're on ship, I mean, it's exactly the same conditions for the spread of pathogens, close quarters, limited sanitary conditions uh, and limited ability to dispose of not just uh, human secretions from the symptoms, but also uh, bodies afterwards. And they try to throw it overboard. But, you know, initially there would obviously be a lot of close human contact. So you have these coffin ships that would arrive and the Irish sometimes uh, off of Quebec. There was an island where they would be deposited in quarantine and effectively just people when you hear quarantine you think of our modern idea of quarantine which is you know there's going to be doctors there they're going to take care of you and they're going to try to help you and you know there's sanitary conditions in place the quarantine off of a uh, quebec island for example was just an, uh, an island where you were taken to die effectively i mean if you lived good for you you have a hearty immune system but they people were lying on the ground which i can imagine in canada was not very comfortable at certain times of year in tents and just left there to see if they, you know, made it through. Um, in New York City, the Irish were piling into uh, these tenements. And there's actually a tenement museum here in New York City that I've, I've been to that shows you the close quarters. You're talking about, in some cases, a four or 500 square foot apartment, which would be the size of a studio apartment in New York City right now, um, a small studio apartment with up to 10 residents, you know, 10 people living in 500, 400 square feet. That's very close quarters. No indoor plumbing, uh, very little light. In fact, most of the time they only had windows on one side of the building. So depending on where you are, you'd have no windows, no exposure to the outside air. Uh, they had terrible trash, you know, the, the trash removal system. They ended up just burning a lot of things, a lot of raw sewage out in the streets. And they had these outbreaks of dysentery in New York City uh, that affected mostly the Irish population. Um, there was also an African-American population in Five Points that was hit very hard. Another constituency without any political power uh, that was hit very hard by these dysentery outbreaks. But to give you a sense of the scale of it, there were uh, a few cases where they had uh, a few outbreaks uh, of cholera where they had uh, three or four thousand dead in one year. Um, and that was when New York City in the 1830s, 1840s had about 250,000 people. So it would be more like, uh, you know, you have a quarter of a million people then, so 30x. I mean, it would be like 100,000 people dying now from in terms of scale. Um, and this was due to overcrowding, a government that didn't particularly care. They didn't really know, you know, they, they didn't care. They didn't want to spend the resources. And these were Irish immigrants. And it's interesting we have this discussion so much about Im immigration in this country and and how it used to we used to be so great. You know, the, there's this narrative that we used to take in immigrants and we were so great to them. And now because of Trump, we're so bad to them. The Irish were effectively pulled off of boats where they were dying, put into uh, substandard uh, ghettoized housing where they would then be lucky if they could find any kind of a job. And in some cases uh, would, would actually slowly starve to death of malnutrition, especially Irish children. This is in New York City. This is in the 1830s, 1840s. 
after starving to death in their home country in Ireland came here and then through malnutrition and preventable, easily preventable disease would die here. Uh, and there was no there was no social welfare agencies. There was nothing. The only people that stayed around when there would be these cholera outbreaks were some of you probably guessed it. Some members of the Catholic clergy, nuns, priests, they would stay and minister to the sick and people would die. Remember, for everyone who just there were for the thousands who died, there would be tens of thousands who would be sickened. And they had not particularly good uh, numbers, ways of, of counting this in the first place. And they would just pile bodies out in the street. Uh, so pandemic disease has been with us for a very long time. People have been pointing recently to the influenza outbreak of 1918, which killed 40 to 50 million people around the world. That was just a type of uh, that was just a type of flu virus. And it is, in fact, the case, as much as we are told for reasons of political correctness not to focus in on this, that many of these diseases, I mean, guess what? Cholera actually comes from Asia originally. It was transferred by sailors to different ports, and there were outbreaks all over Europe and then outbreaks in the, in the, uh, in the New World. But one of the reasons why Asia is such a particularly, uh, why it is, is a very well-known and well-established locus for the uh, beginnings of pandemic disease, by the way, the Black Death, bubonic plague also came from Asia, is you have huge numbers of people in contact with, with enormous uh, numbers of livestock. And that is very necessary for some of the, the, the mutations that occur for the virus, for example, with influenza. With influenza, you have avian flu, and the avian flu can be, you know, it can be passed to human beings, but you also have pigs there, and these viruses can bounce between different animals, and pigs have particularly effective receptors. So they can get pigs can get viruses that are can be transferred to humans, and viruses that can be transferred from birds, waterfowl in particular, migratory fowl. And so you have this petri dish effect of some of the livestock in Asia become places where new diseases uh, spring up, and those diseases because of the difference in sanitary conditions and the close contact and just the sheer number of people who are living women we we think of people you know farmers live in a house and then they go down to the barnyard and then they deal with the animals but in many places in asia animal husbandry involves living in very close proximity to the very to the animals and the waste products of the animals that they are tending to uh, they just it's different sanitary standards so you have had this you know avian flu and sars and uh, and swine flu, these things do come out of the Asian landmass uh, that comes from Asia uh, and find their way all the way to New York City and cause, and as well as many other cities around the world, in the case of cholera, in the case of many different diseases. And then you have the government stepping in to try and fix these things and often having to learn the lessons the hardest way by doing exactly the wrong things at certain times uh, to try to help people. And there's a very there's some very interesting studies of how cholera outbreaks in New York City specifically were used in the in some of the earliest cases of what would now be modern epidemiology, uh, figuring out where the out where were people getting sick and then tracing that back using detective work effectively to figure out well if everyone's getting sick at one pump near you know one water pump one well effectively at one part of the Five Points neighborhood, which is what they ended up figuring out, maybe it's not just in the air. Maybe there's something at this water pump. And then they started to figure out maybe it's in the water, which it was. Um, and then that's how you're having all these people get sick. So interesting stuff. I mean, disease is scary. Climate change is not scary. 
This is what I think is so interesting. People get all freaked out about climate change. It's never going to, you're going to be fine. Climate change is not scary. Pandemic disease is scary. And the Chinese government, a government that we can't really trust, spending as much time as they do lying to their own people as well as us, uh, it's also concerning. You know, what are they what are they telling us? What are they not telling us about coronavirus? I think we're all going to be okay. I wouldn't lose any sleep over it yet, but just remember that when governments lie about these things, they do so blatantly and badly, and no one is ever really held to account for this stuff either. So that that does not help the uh, sleep well at night case, but I think we're going to be all right. I think we're going to be all right. I'm an optimist. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. All right, let's hit it because I, I went a little long there. So we have a truncated roll call today. We'll do a longer one tomorrow. Isaac writes, a happy day to the scrumptious audio cuisine that is The Buck Sexton Show. I have been binge listening to your older shows the past couple of weeks, and I must say, your Governor Cuomo impression is comedic gold. I think I have laughed out loud every time. While your Hillary and Elizabeth are both excellent, you should be given a bonus or something for the Governor Cuomo impression. I really enjoy the dichotomy presented when you and Mark interact on air. You both do an excellent job. I look forward to each episode. Keep up the good work, Isaac. Well, Isaac, thank you so much for the very kind note. Uh, we appreciate it here. If you wouldn't mind, Isaac, please do tell uh, family and friends to listen to the Buck Saxon Show. You can always find us on the Apple Podcast uh, app or st- in, in the Apple Podcast store. And you can also listen to the iHeartRadio app. And if you want to watch the show, if you're a visual learner, Pluto TV Channel 248, The First, is where you go for that. Download the Pluto TV app. It is free. It's got a lot of good content. The best content, though, is The First. Don, can President Trump run three more ter- for three more terms? What do you think? If President Trump is acquitted Wednesday but is still on the record of the Senate as impeached by the House, would that not nullify his last term and allow him to run for a third term? Shields high. Don, um, no. I do not think that would happen, Don. I do not think that is that is that uh, would be a correct analysis of the situation, and I would not want President Trump. We have presidents for two terms, and that's it. There will be no Trump third term, and I would, I would not support a Trump third term. That would be a problem. Andrew from Indiana, I am not a fan of either of the ladies who performed during this year's Super Bowl a halftime show, but I had some takeaways. Shakira looks fantastic for her age. All right, this is Andrew speaking, not me. But when J-Lo came out, um, he said it reminded him of his mom. We need to set age limits for Super Bowl performers. Also, Shakira can call me. I like I've already said I've already said my piece about J Lo. I'm not a J Lo person, never have been, never will be. Gil from Philly. I love the buck because he teaches me new words, generally not considered an easy thing to do. Beyond that, a thought. As the head of the administrative branch, the president is responsible for enforcing laws passed by Congress, similar to police enforcing laws passed by state legislatures. So impeaching Trump for wanting Ukraine to investigate corruption is like arresting a cop for punching a bank robber um sure gil thanks robert i've been team buck since the blaze days Ooh, original blaze squad i recently got two co-workers to start listening to you i'm pretty sure it was the hilarious voices you do beto and the british elitist has got to be my favorite i'm not even sure which one is the british elitist i'm not even sure which one that is 
I feel like I was like. I think you all of your British voices are just elitists. Oh, they all oh, cool. yeah, yeah. they're British people. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Um, by the way, Dalsim is the Street Fighter character you're looking for the other day. Keep up the great work, Shields High. That's right. Yeah, Dalsim. He was the yoga guy who had a thing called he did this thing Yoga Flame, and he would like shoot fire out of his mouth at you. Street Fighter was a great game back in the day. I did very much. It was on Super Nintendo, I remember, I think, right? Yeah. Or it was on Sega? or Super, No, Super Nintendo. Yeah, whatever it was. It was a good game. I enjoyed it. Which one? It was on both. Oh, it was on both. Except yeah. it was a lot more gory on Sega. Oh. Because Nintendo was still like a family company yeah, yeah, back yeah, yeah. then. It wouldn't Mario! Yes. Super Mario Brothers. The blood was gray, I think, on Nintendo. Really? Yeah. That's not, that's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Daniel, hey, Buck, your show is absolutely fantastic, the best out there bar none. I was wondering if you would comment on the new stargazing permit in the state of New York requiring people to buy a permit to look at the night sky in various public parks in this state. So now you have to pay to look up at the stars? What? Shields high, keep up the great work. Daniel, thank you so much for the kind words about the show. I don't know about the stargazing. Is this a thing? Do you know about this stargazing permit? It wouldn't surprise me, would it? No, I mean, it sounds like something that... Governor Cuomo, if you want to look at the sky, you must pay the tax, also known as a toll, or funding my stupid ideas. I we need more. I need more Governor Cuomo. I, I was hoping he'd run for president. That'd be amazing. Then you'd get to hear him. He's apparently a very mean man, by the way. I know this from people. I know this from people I know who have worked with him. Sure. Yeah, he's not a nice person. I'm not surprised by that. I mean, then again, his brother did threaten to throw a guy half his size down the stairs for calling him Fredo, so. The Cuomo temper. Yeah, the Cuomo temper is apparently a thing. Steve writes, hey, Buck, no safer place than the Freedom Hut and my favorite locale to be. Just had a thought. With Adam uh, Schiff, the person in charge of the House Intel Committee, how can President Trump have any confidence in reporting matters of national security to that House committee? Is it possible that President Trump could instead relay such reporting to Representative Jordan or Nunes, where said reporting could be kept close to the vest rather than getting leaked to the press? Um, no, that's always there's always the threat that you will have people who are partisans who have access in the Congress who decide that they're going to leak information. That's always a thing. Uh, so, yeah, that's a that's there's nothing the president can do about that other than as the as the uh, executive branch head not share information with Congress at all. You, what you really would have trouble with is if you start only sharing stuff with Republican members of Congress and not Democrats, then the, then you'd get into some issues. Andrew, Buck, you have the best show on radio, podcast, and Pluto TV. You make me hate weekends because there's no Buck Sexton show on weekends, but the real reason I'm writing is to suggest a show on Amazon Prime I've never heard you mention. The show is called Justified. It's about a deputy U.S. marshal in Kentucky. My opinion is the best series ever on TV. Please check it out. Shields high. Uh, well, thank you so much um, for the heads up. I have seen a couple of episodes of Justified. Have you seen it? It's good. Have you ever seen it? You would, you would actually would, not. You would like it. It's a solid show. I have to get another subscription. On Amazon? You don't have Amazon Prime? No. You have Netflix, though, right? I do. All right. Well, maybe maybe I'll find you a way to get Oh, no, I can't give you my Amazon, because then you could order I all your like, Rangers gear and stuff on my, great. my account. Yeah, I can't do that. Producer Mark's gonna make the make the Buckster, uh, you know, lose his house. I don't own a house. That's yeah, you don't have one. I don't have one. Thanks for pointing that out. I don't have one either. There we go. Well, soon you will. That's the show for today, everybody. Shields high.